0: This is MSEI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is April 21st, 2022. Today on the program, last year, it felt like every day, a different company around the world was announcing a net zero goal. Some, like Netflix, went very big proclaiming that they would achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the end of 2022. For those of you keeping score at home, that's eight months from now. Others, including the firm I work for, MSCI, were a bit more measured, aiming toward 2040. But regardless of the chosen date, many companies, investors, countries, and individuals have realized that the time for talk is done. On today's episode, we're going to try to get as specific and concrete as possible because in 2022, we all simply need to roll up our sleeves and get to work.
1: I look back with colleagues and we kind of laugh. Oh, last year we, you know, we felt like we were on top of all of this and so much has changed that you see how much more you could be doing and are doing. That's today's first guest. Hi, I'm Diana Tidd. I'm Chief Responsibility Officer at MSCI from setting our net zero target, which is setting a goal with a company where you don't have line of sight necessarily into how you're achieving it. So that itself was a big step. The next step is really you know, looking into that goal, right? And thinking about setting interim targets, right? To make sure that we're on the path to achieve that goal. And we have these points where we're stopping and double-checking and making sure we're, we're on that right path. Since we set our net zero target, we started looking at our near-term target, and we stepped back again and say, okay, what's the latest climate science saying? And what it's saying is that the world needs to cut emissions by 50% globally by 2030. So that helps inform near-term target setting for companies. And then we thought about, okay, how can we tangibly achieve these Targets if we're to update our near-term target. And when you look at a sector like finance, it's important to try to say, how can we get line of sight to make us feel comfortable we we could actually achieve a goal? And in this area, because we're not high emitters, what it will take, and the analysis shows, that if companies and all of our suppliers go to renewable electricity, we should be able to hit that 50% reduction by 2030 does not mean at all it's the only thing we should do but it allows us to get comfortable that we can start building very tangible plans towards achieving the targets and build out processes for getting there
2: increasingly we 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 are hearing our our stakeholders ask us to and ask companies in general not only to have long term goals but also to have milestones along the way that are consistent with their long term goals
0: that's our next guest
2: I'm Véronique Menu, and I'm uh, based in the MSCI Paris office, and I'm the head of corporate responsibility.
0: Who built on that idea during our conversation.
2: In our own model at MSCI, we give more credit to companies with uh, interim targets. And so as a result, from a corporate standpoint, we have also defined, you know, a net zero goal before 2040. And we have um, an interim target that we are in the process of updating to align it with a 1.5 degree pathway and we recently committed to submit uh, not only this near-term target once it's updated but also our long-term commitment for verification by the science-based target initiative. This initiative is emerging as a standard in the industry so having it certified Will help in terms of the credibility of our of our target. So then, when we um, ask our suppliers to have similar commitment as ours, then we could also point them to the Science Based Target Initiative and have them have their own target certified.
0: The Science Based Target Initiative, or SBTI, you knew there'd be an acronym, right? The goal of SBTI is to create a framework that takes climate commitments or carbon reduction targets, which are created with different levels of scope, and make them consistent. And more importantly for investors, make them comparable. But as I mentioned at the top of the program, the question is,
1: what comes after commitment? How do you measure progress? There's no specific playbook of action for how to get to net zero. So it's new for many companies, First, they have to think about even, you know, how is it relevant for them, right? So there are some leading providers in the ESG and climate space that work in these areas, but there is no single framework today for how to get to net zero or exactly how to achieve your carbon targets, right? So that makes it um, more complex for companies and a learning process really for everybody. It also makes comparing companies to each other in these areas more complex. So as you're thinking about implementing your approach, you wanna look at what other companies are doing, but that's not simple. It's complex, but there are some tools out there. It's actually an area where MSCI comes in. We provide tools, metrics, and ratings to help companies understand if they are on the 1.5 degree path and to compare themselves to other companies. And it's not
0: just companies, of course. Investors are facing pressure to work toward net zero portfolios. For that perspective, we turn to our third guest.
3: Hi, I'm Jorge Mina. I run the analytics product line at MSCI. I've been with the company for about 24 years. Achieving net zero is now a common goal for for companies as well for investors. So there's clearly a lot of similarities. They both need to set their goals. They need to make sure that they can measure and report where they are, so their starting point. From there, they can make decisions in terms of how to reduce uh, emissions, whether it is in the company or in the portfolio, and then measure and report progress towards uh, the goals that, that they set. So all that is, is very similar, but there's also some differences, right? Investors need to do these across their entire portfolios. And they not only invest in companies, whether it's through equities or, or bonds, but they also invest in sovereign bonds and municipals and mortgages and real assets and a lot of things that that are not companies. So they have a, a broader problem, so to speak, and they need to take a, a holistic view and then decide how to achieve those goals. And they have a number of, of tools to do that, right? So one of them, for example, is, is engaging, engaging with with the companies. Uh, so so there's also a lot of interaction between the investors and the companies. Investors want to make sure that those companies have plans to reduce their emissions because that, in turn, will be an important uh, tool for investors to get to, to net zero in their portfolios as well. They can take more drastic measures, so these investors can also divest from um, carbon-intensive industries or, or from specific companies in an industry that don't have... A solid plan to to reduce their emissions, and then on the positive side, there's ways to capture opportunities. Right, they, they they can be investment in green technologies, and opportunities for those are increasing right over time, as as more and more people put capital to work in green assets, and they can also benefit financially. From companies with with high uh, exposure to climate risk by potentially shorting those assets, right? And how how those are treated is important, uh, and how those are reported as important because uh, obviously, if you know investors think that whether you're long or short an asset, uh, the gross uh, exposure is what matters, then uh, you're removing a tool available to them to 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 manage uh, climate.
0: There are other important differences for investors to consider. For example,
3: they're increasingly looking to manage, or, or they're being pushed to manage what uh, is called double materiality. So, what climate change does for companies on the one hand, and also what are those companies doing to the uh, to the environment? But as they do that, they need to think about how they're going to meet their fiduciary responsibility. So, asset managers need to look after the best interest of their clients, that's um, a promise that they've made, and asset owners need to look at the best interest of their beneficiaries, right? And so, both asset managers and asset owners need to develop these these net zero strategies consistent with their fiduciary obligations and also aligned with all the stakeholders and their expectations. So, not not just their clients uh, or their beneficiaries, but also regulators uh, and even the general public. So that might require amendments to, um, to the investment guidelines that they have. So said a different way, um, you know, if you, if you think about it, delivering the best returns uh, for investors is not the same thing, you know, or not always, you know, consistent with achieving net zero. It, it all meets in the long run, but in the short run, aggressive decarbonization of the portfolio can potentially lead to some business risk by, for example, missing out on short-term price increases or, or narrowing the, the, the investment universe uh, uh, available to investors.
0: So where are investors on this journey? I asked Jorge for his impressions based on the many conversations that he has with clients.
3: We are still in the very early stages of understanding the, the financial risk that is posed by climate change. We know that it's that it's high, but we need to be more precise in terms of how we measure it and understand it. And implementation of the net zero investing is, is very complex, right? It requires the adoption of new data, of new systems. Uh, we need to know emissions, you know, at an issue level, industry level, at the portfolio level, at the entire enterprise level. And it requires the incorporation of this data in various areas of, of a company. So for example, portfolio managers need to incorporate it, the marketing function, compliance function, investor relations, uh, and so on and so forth. So so, so it's clearly a complex and, and, and challenging topic. And, and we're still uh, in the early days of really even gathering all the data as necessary to, to get a, a full understanding of this. So the approach that everyone's taking is, let's get to to full coverage of all the assets in the portfolio and then improve from there. So um, starting with carbon footprinting, which is basically uh, measuring the finance emissions for all the assets and all the portfolios across our enterprise, and then over time, improving the quality and the sophistication of the data. Uh, this is this is how things get better and uh, and and we've actually seen this before in other disciplines that uh, that we know very well for example in risk management right in the early 90s jp morgan ceo dennis weatherstone asked for a report at 4:15 p.m. so it was called the 4:15 report that combined all the risks of the firm on a single page now the report uh used very simple volatility measures right that were then vastly vastly improved uh, over the years but but at the time that 415 report was very important because it provided a timely picture of the risks of the entire bank. And so uh, for the CEO that was a huge improvement over where they were. And this is exactly where we need to to start in climate. Um, I, I think uh, it was uh, it was Kane who said uh, it's better to be approximately right than exactly wrong and that's what we need to do first and then from there you know get to 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 more sophistication and improve uh, the quality and, and 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 the details around it i tend to think of it like running a
1: business we often in business Test new hypothesis of how we might be able to drive growth in a new area of the business and we kind of incubate ideas we start to gather information on them and metrics and then we fine tune those right. And so I think the same applies in this area there's definitely plenty of testing right there's a lot of estimating but to me that's an important starting point because you have to start somewhere so. You can build it up over time to having more complex areas, for example, looking at your carbon footprint and having it be precise instead of modeled. But in general, simply having an estimate often means you're starting your path towards decarbonization or in any of these areas of corporate responsibility. It's creating a baseline measurement from which you can measure your progress. So it may not be perfect, but I think perfection may hinder progress if we seek that up front. And really it's okay, I think in these areas that their models and their estimates, they get us started and they teach us what we need to think about to actually perfect them and be on the right path over time.
0: So if you have to start somewhere, where do you start? For many companies, their supply chain makes up the bulk of their carbon emissions. These are the scope three emissions we've spoken about before. If we use MSCI as an example, that's certainly the case.
2: You know, as a service provider, we have in absolute, uh, compared to some of the big emitting sectors, we have low emissions, right? Like I was looking at the the biggest emitter in MSCI, Acqui, and that company emits more than 2 billion tons of CO2, while we emit 39,000, right? So, So obviously, you know... Our risks exist, but it's fairly low compared to other companies in high-emitting sectors. At MSCI, we have four major sources of emissions. The first one, which is the biggest, is the emissions coming from purchased goods and services. So the emissions from our own suppliers. And they account for about 75% of our total footprint. The second one is the electricity. So the emission associated with the electricity that we use in our offices, and that accounts for about 10%. And then we have business travel and employee commute uh, that account for about 4% respectively. So overall, our scope three emissions account for more than 90% of our total emission. So now how do we address that? what we've done is we've put together, you know, a sustainable supplier management program, and we have a dedicated team working on um, within this program. They want to understand our suppliers and their commitment, not only on the climate front, but also, you know, their DNI commitment as well as their corporate responsibility practices. Then the the second thing they're doing is identify the suppliers who are critical to us from a business uh, perspective. And then third, they are engaging with those key suppliers to educate them and have them align with um, similar commitments as ours. So we are educating, encouraging our suppliers to define climate commitments that are as ambitious as ours. So just to give you an idea, as of today, more than 40% of our uh, suppliers have climate commitments. So this is obviously, you know, a very good uh, percentage, but we are working to increase that uh, percentage in order to meet our net zero goal.
0: But what if some of the companies in your supply chain, or in your portfolio for that matter, are private companies? Doesn't that make it more difficult to get a true sense of their carbon emissions and by extension,
3: your own? The pressure has been bigger on public companies for sure. So the the quality of the data and the availability of the data is is, is much better. but uh, but we're seeing also a big push um, to start implementing uh, very similar reporting standards uh, for private companies. So in, in in many cases, that's coming through um, the, the the private equity investors that own those companies. Uh, that are now being pushed to provide that transparency to their to their investors, and so it's going to take a little bit longer for for private companies. But um, you know, over time, I'm convinced that we'll, we're we're going to get to, uh, to to similar standards across the board.
1: Private companies inherently you know, don't disclose uh, as much because of the structures they're in, uh, being private and not public and not having the same requirements. But The public company requirements of the US SEC pending rule, for example, is for public companies or companies issuing public debt. When you look at private companies, we do see that around the world they tend to be at an earlier stage, different levels in different regions, but certainly at an earlier stage, many of them, of their thinking about these areas. And so the pending rules can help them understand themselves. What might be important to them, but they actually also will start to see more and more focus as the client demand for those investing in, for example, private equity, the investors in that want to see the same level of information as they see on public companies because they're used to seeing it and they think it's important. Another area for pressure on private companies will be supply chain pressure, where companies like MSCI and so many others across the world are starting to engage way more actively with their suppliers to say, you're part of our carbon footprint. How are you thinking about carbon commitments and where are you on that path? And so for us at MSCI and in many companies, that means starting to ask the questions of these private companies who are suppliers. But also for MSCI, we think about how can we educate them to help bring them along the path. Over time, we've seen a progression. We see it in proxy guidelines for public companies where those guidelines about areas of corporate responsibility have become more and more specific over time. So that's for public companies. But you can imagine for privates, their various stakeholders also, you know, it starts broad and understanding that they need to be educated. But over time, as we all need to achieve, for example, our carbon targets, that pressure could get significantly stronger for them. So supply
0: chain issues, clearly the largest slice. But what about the non-supplier emissions that Viro mentioned? What about, say, energy use?
2: We have several levers at our disposal to reduce um, the scope Two emissions. The, the first one is that we will continue to increase efficiency in the office and, for example, continue to select green certified building. The other lever is around reducing occupancy. And similarly, you know, we have a future of work program, and we are promoting flexible work environments. So that's already, you know, in the works. And then the third lever for us is to increase renewables, but it's not necessarily available in um, every office that uh, we have, and we're also leasing our office space. So. What we do is we engage with landlords, but we're also exploring what we call energy attribute certificates, EACs. Um, And so just to name uh, a couple of examples of EACs, in the U.S., for example, they're called RECs, or in the EU, we call them Guarantee of Origin. And what they are is they are certificates that prove that one megawatt hour of electricity was generated from renewable sources. So, by purchasing them, a company can then claim that their electricity is green, and, as a result, can also reduce their scope two emissions. So that's a lever that we are exploring, and we could potentially rely on them to reduce our scope to emissions.
0: Now, when you talk about EACs and that description, i can I can hear people linking them with carbon offsets. Right, which are met with some skepticism in the ESG climate community. Can you address that? Are are they the same as offsets, or if not, how are they different?
2: Sure. So, um, so carbon offsets represent one ton of CO two that is either you know removed or avoided, as opposed to energy certificates. We're talking about one megawatt hour of electricity. Um, But you're right that they're often, um, you know, considered similarly. But there are differences because it is true that for carbon offsets, this is not a very transparent market. It is a complex market and they've been, you know, different controversies. So it's important to look for, you know, additionality and, uh, you know, high quality verification as well as permanence for carbon offsets. For EACs, it's a bit different because it's very local and it's more uh, regulated than the carbon offset market. So, um, for example, if you look at the uh, science-based targets methodology, EACs are allowed while carbon offsets are not. That said, it's also important to mention that if you want to be authentic, A company should also look at other levers, right? But definitely EACs are also a credible tool that is recognized by standard setter and external verifier as uh, a relevant mechanism to use to meet carbon targets.
0: I mentioned at the top of this episode that we were going to get as specific and concrete as possible. And so along with choosing whether to use EACs or addressing issues with a supplier's net zero approach, if getting to net zero is truly a goal, you're going to need to build the infrastructure within your company and you're going to need to get buy-in.
1: If you think about corporate responsibility, one aspect of it is transparency. And so that's a very important aspect because your stakeholders can't really know where you are unless you're sharing information with them. So corporate responsibility data is a category that is uh, complex. So corporate responsibility data may come from your cybersecurity teams at the firm. So IT, it may come from your procurement teams who are working with the supply chain to report on metrics about their climate and carbon target progress or their diversity. And it may come from HR. And basically the data can come from all over the firm. But it's being, in many cases, publicly disclosed and so companies are now really starting to focus on how do we ensure that the proper processes controls even potentially assurances from third parties are in place to ensure that this data has the same level of integrity and accuracy as any other publicly reported data And also there are areas about the governance of corporate responsibility. More and more shareholders are wanting to see, and other stakeholders as well, how companies are thinking about the oversight of corporate responsibility and climate. So where does climate risk sit in terms of board committees? There's physical risk, is that audit? There's transition risk, is that governance or is that across the full board? There's compensation metrics. So our leaders being you know, paid and evaluated on whether they're achieving climate commitment goals, for example? So that's you know, talent and comp committees. So really mapping out across the organization where the owners are, where the oversight is happening, and then also making sure that the information reported to those groups is the relevant information for them to be able to give good guidance and oversight. As a chief responsibility officer, I want to give decision-making tools to the leadership of the firm so that they can participate and support achieving our carbon targets. I want to share share the targets with others and not have it siloed off in corporate responsibility, right? So I don't want to tell them what to do and have to come to them in a few years and say, sorry, this supplier has not set a carbon target, and so we need to change suppliers. Instead, I want to give them the tools and processes to allow them to be part of good decision-making about the firm's strategy and the carbon commitment. So carbon pricing to me is a good example of that where you can essentially integrate carbon metrics right into your budgeting process. And so the stakeholders and decision-makers who are acting on your budget can actually see the carbon impact of their investments and their decision making for the operating plans for the coming year. So carbon pricing is newer in a lot of areas. But to me, it's a really interesting way and a tool to help integrate climate thinking across your firm so that all the key stakeholders are part of this important part of a firm strategy. And it doesn't sit siloed in a particular division.
0: And how do you go about, I, I guess, in both directions in terms of Selling the idea, for lack of a better term, I'm, I'm wondering about selling it up to management, but also to these managers uh, who who will need to put these methods into place, whether it's carbon budgeting or or other approaches.
1: It's a great question. and I think an important part across all the industries I imagine for corporate responsibility is really developing persuasion skills because corporate responsibility goes across a, a, an entire company right? So you're acting across all these different functions. A recent example is as we were looking at our carbon targets and how we were going to achieve them, we talked to a bunch of the senior leaders in our Corporate Responsibility Policy Committee about actions we could take to achieve our carbon target. And we were really drilling into, you know, how does this impact our office footprint, our suppliers, and specifically what are the levers we could take to achieve our goals. And I was excited when one of the leaders came back and said, before we put our proposal to them on carbon pricing to say this needs to be integrated into our budgeting. This has to be part of our process. People need to understand the impact on it, the investments we're making. This is an area where you have to think strategically about how to provide the right type of information and help stakeholders digest that information and conclude along with you on the actions you need to take. Trying to force carbon pricing across a firm or trying to force action with suppliers, I think, builds up resistance and you really don't get to true integration. We've spent a lot of our time
0: today talking about difficulties. Difficulties when it comes to data, measurement, selecting the right levers to pull, as Vero put it, and difficulties managing the pressures from many different stakeholders. But there's another side to the story. Working toward net zero can have some positive effects outside of, you know, continued life as we know it. Jorge spoke earlier about potential investment opportunities. There are opportunities that exist for companies as well.
1: I had my nieces, um, I was texting them recently that Sephora was having a sale on makeup that was clean non-toxic and sustainable. So that's the kind I buy. So I sent them a note like, oh, they're having a big sale on this in case you guys are interested. I know you care about that. And the responses I got really made me laugh because they made me step back. This generation, at least we saw with my nieces, right? They're looking for companies who don't have a line of products or, you know, or just distributing products that are non-toxic and sustainable. They're looking New companies. These are a lot of the companies they shop in are newer companies that have diverse leaders that have net zero targets and have fully integrated into the value system of the company, sustainability, and having non toxic products. So it was just interesting to see how much that is embedded in the generations that are coming and are the future workforce for so many of our companies.
2: There was a, an article the other day saying that seventy five percent of the workforce will be millennial in twenty twenty five. And so that's also one of the reasons why we have, you know, strong corporate responsibility initiatives, dNI initiatives. And we heard from our employees um, who wants. Who really like the fact that you know we are a climate leader and we are walking the talk, and they, increasingly we see also interest from our uh, employees in participating in our climate action network. So their um, their role is about you know educating employees around climate and environmental issues. So. Right now, it's difficult to really measure whether it drives, you know, engagement or it drives motivation. Uh, But we do believe that um, it will, you know, um, definitely attract and retain talent, uh, being a leader in climate and corporate responsibility more broadly.
1: And there's more. Companies need to consider the risks, and that's part of their job and part of their key strategy and their operating processes. But also, there's potential tremendous growth opportunities that corporate responsibility and climate action can drive. If we prepare for climate change, companies will have better management of potential costs, right? Because they'll have more warning time of what's to come. And so they'll be able to presumably manage costs better. But also, as I said, they'll be able to see these long-term growth opportunities and action them in a fast-changing world. In terms of capital flows, we see money pouring into climate and ESG-focused funds. So this relates to access to capital for companies, whether they're public or private companies. In terms of lower cost of capital for companies, we think about companies issuing debt and what considerations banks are making with regard to how they're thinking about the companies or their, I would say, their um, own loan book and the carbon footprint of that. And so they're starting to consider areas related to corporate responsibility and climate. So we really think it's um, key to driving long term growth.
0: That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe and me to Diana, Vero and Jorge, and to all of you for listening. Next up on perspectives, the explosion of data has created nearly endless possibilities for investors. We'll explore ways to harness that power. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.